Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi, welcome to Location Matters. My name is Sarah Butler and I'm your host. I'm here today once again to talk about everything geospatial and this week I am joined by two of my colleagues that I'm really excited to talk to. But first, let's get started with actually covering the topic that we're going to be talking about today. And that's really integrating data sources into a single platform in the world of GIS. It's pretty common to work with companies and on projects where large amounts of data have been captured across disparate systems. However, while each data source is owned and managed by individual departments, it is best practice for all data to be stored and accessible in one connected and secure site-wide system. An example of this is integrating data that uses different coordinate systems, for example, a local mine grid projection and a GDA 2020 coordinate system. Both systems need to integrate in order to match Tanya accurately. So without any further ado, I want to welcome our speakers onto the podcast today. So we'll start with Nick Chai, um, who many of you that listen to the podcast will be very familiar with. Nick, he's been on a few episodes and in fact, this season has racked up two extra episodes um, so for that, I'm very grateful. But Nick, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself to any new listeners? Yeah, good day, everybody. Um, my name's Nick. I've been working in GIS uh, for a fair while now in all sorts of different environments, I suppose, so through government um, and then more recently in the mining space. Thanks once again, Nick, for being here. And we have for the first time, when his debut location matters, <laughs> Jack Green, um, who is one of our principal GIS consultants, and he's based in the Perth office, like Nick, as well. Um, and Jack is joining us today from the NGIS office. So, Jack, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm Jack Green here. Um, Sarah mentioned uh, principal GIS consultant here at, at NGIS. I've um, been working for around eight years, 20 years in industry, um, in all sorts of different fields from government to mining to all over the place. So seen plenty um, and yeah, excited to have a bit of a chat today. Okay, well, we'll get stuck straight in um, talking about integrating different data sources. So Nick, we'll start with you. Can you give us an example of a time that you saw a company or companies that have worked on a project that might have been storing data across different systems? Uh, yeah, th this happens. This is pretty common because a lot of data has a spatial component to it. So it doesn't always have to be spatial data as well. So at the end of the day, when you want to do make a decision or something, you usually have to view all of those data sources together in one spot. So yeah, so you have like engineers storing stuff in their own, maybe a flat DXF file format. And then you'll have database systems which don't have a spatial component, but maybe are linked to spatial data with a ID field or something like that, like a common field. Um, and then you'll have um, the GIS guys, which will be working in their own, you know, ArcSDE environment or whatever, SQL spatial or whatever database environment. And then you'll have normal, normal databases. And you might have all of this all in uh, one company. <laughs> so yeah, it's very common that you'll have data being stored across different systems. In the sense of like from a company perspective, do these different teams and they're doing the different, you know, storing things differently, have their own systems in place. How common would you say it is for people to be like having their data sets talk to each other, Jack? 
Uh, yeah, so in, in a lot of these situations, you know, that they need to see each other's data, but they don't necessarily have a really nice integrated way of doing that. So there's a lot of translations that need to happen to go from different formats. So not all the software packages can read all the same formats. Um, that can often lead to duplications of data, um, issues with, um, I guess, timing with data as well. So not always being in sync. And that can cause all sorts of problems when, when data sets are, aren't aligned across the business. Not everyone's looking at the same versions um, and yeah, it can cause all sorts of issues as, as you're going through with those sorts of things. So, Yeah, and in, in your career, how common is this that you see this happening? Oh, it's, it's very it's very common. Um, you get solid situations in a lot of businesses, so they, they have their own little world that they need to take care of. And they do that very well, but they can often forget about the bigger picture of the larger business as a whole. Um, so particularly as you get to the larger organisations, um, there isn't necessarily great you know, communication between these different parts of the business. So that can always cause problems as well with where people aren't talking to each other as, as they should be. I wonder how long it might take then for, for a business to turn around and go, okay, everyone, stop. We need to have one place here that we're all looking at. Um, do you think maybe, and this question for both of you, do you reckon maybe this is something that a lot of companies for a long time maybe put that in a bit of a, you know, too hard, too much time basket in terms of allocating time and resources to, to fixing up a problem like that and making sure that there is that synergy between teams and, you know, that way of working? Um, I think when you're setting up a new system these days, it is uh, front and foremost to have a single point of truth. So a lot of companies will have, you know, their one database, but you'll still, like, as Jack said, you still have these little siloed areas, which um, people will, will take the main data from the common data place and then um, work off of that. And it may come out of sync, but they're aware of that. And then eventually when they do need to make a decision or something, they might go back to that single point of truth. So uh, I think a lot of places are aware of that, but, you know, it depends because the that single point of truth can be expensive to set up, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, I don't know, Jack, what, what do you reckon? Yeah, um, and a lot of the time it's, it's legacy systems that cause the problems too. So, um, you know, software packages that use some strange out-of-date database or format that, that isn't compatible with, you know, current technology, um, how do you best bring that into, into the modern world? Um, so yeah, it certainly causes problems from, from that sense. And some, some situations you just can't, you can't have a central point of truth because the, the software doesn't talk to each other. So you do need to have, like Nick said, situations where data does get, you know, extracted and siloed into another section just so it can be worked on in a particular package. Um, it's understanding, I guess, the most important part is, is when that has occurred um, and making sure that those regular syncs are, are in place and the systems in place to make sure that that is happening. Um, otherwise, yeah, you do end up with, with out of sync data, which yeah, can cause all sorts of problems. So what is the process, um, and either of you can answer this question, but whether it's beginning, like starting from the very beginning with a business and they're trying to create that single point of truth or maybe they've got the legacy systems in place and they're trying to, you know, tidy things up. But what would you guys say are the steps or the process for integrating data sources into a single platform? Where do you even begin? Uh, so I guess I could start with this. So I've sort of gone through uh, a startup, um, starting up of a new mine project. Uh, I won't mention who it's with, but basically it starts with talking to all of the people that are going to use the data. So you you know you talk to your environmental people, heritage, 
uh, your engineering teams, everyone. So all of the, um, gather all your use cases together, see what data they would be using, what data sources they would be using, and then coming up with a easy way for them to all write to a single, like to a single point of truth, right? So being in the GIS space, we'll usually pick something like an SQL spatial database. Um, and then coming up with the method for reading whatever output that those guys produce and then putting it all into that one spot so that, that SQL spatial database. So it definitely come from, it'll be different in every organization, what they work with, you know, every department might have their own little bit of software that they use. Um, and then if they need offline capability as well, you need to take that into consideration how they're going to get their data for that use case. Um, but yeah, so I would start with, uh, a lot of sort of BA work, really, just intelligence gathering where the data comes from, and then you can come up with your solution after that. Sure. Would you agree with that, Jack? Yeah, certainly. I think it's um it's too easy to get hung up on on the back end of of data sometimes, understanding the database backends and how they all work. You really do need to do that that grunt work up front to to understand the actual business needs and processes that are going to be using that data, where it's going to be used, um, and in a lot of situations. You know, systems that have been in place may may actually be redundant that can be removed, which will save a whole pile of problems as well. So yeah, certainly doing the, doing the understanding of how the end user actually needs to access and use that data is, is the way to go about it. And then you work your way backwards from there rather than from the, the database side first. Yeah, right. So then in terms of communication between teams, and let's say just for instance, maybe communication hasn't been there before, is it possible for one team to see another team's data set in near real time, Nick? Yeah, definitely. So say say you're you're, uh, you're looking to clear a bit of land and you want to see what your what sort of environmental and heritage boundaries you need to consider because each of those probably need a buffer around them before you can go and say, yeah, I'm going to clear that bit of land. Um, and then you've got uh, enviros and heritage doing their work all working in the same um, database environment, you can definitely have the viewer side of it, which is you, you're the guy making the decision to clear this area. Um, you can definitely see the data that they're um, editing as soon as they, you know, um, publish their edits up into that single point of truth. So the viewer application can be anything. And then that process that syncs that up might be set up to run real time. So when, but I mean, a lot of the time we'll see that happen um, as a process overnight. So you normally have like one database where people will be editing into and then overnight you might publish that out to like the actual like dissemination database or the published database, which your viewers would then connect to. So, um, I mean, your viewer could be anything. It could just be ArcMap. It could be um, an online map viewer like ArcGIS server or it could be the Skyline suite of products you're viewing, all of that in 3D. Um, but yeah, that's definitely possible um, as, you know, environment say goes and does their edits. So you should be able to see that straight away in the viewer if you want to set it up that way. Yeah, great. That, and I guess that probably being able to facilitate that kind of sharing of information so quickly would be really helpful in the adoption space in terms of like creating a tool like, you know, you go and you make this single source of truth, but then you've also got to get people using it, right? So <laughs> I think the adoption piece is really important to talk about. Do you guys or have you ever encountered any sort of challenges uh, or seen anything, you know, when it comes to adoption and people using 
um, the tool once it's created? I mean, have you ever had pushback from departments maybe that haven't wanted their data shared in the platform? Have you ever come across anything like that before, Jack? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So there's, there's often that protection element that people may have have, have their data. Um, certainly something that we would have encountered a lot more, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, particularly around, you know, government departments and places like that as well. But, you know, integration of things like SLIP and data sharing um, made people realise the importance of, of making that data more accessible. And even just internally within a, a, an actual organisation itself, um, you'll have, you know, areas that are very protective of what they're doing. And it's, it's an education piece to, to help them to understand that no one's trying to, to take away from what they're actually doing, they're trying to value add to it. So making that data more available across the business is, is always going to be more valuable to the whole business. Um, it's, it's educating the, the, the parts of the business that, that that's the case um, and then getting them on board as, as quickly as you can. And the, the key really thing there is to make the, the system as, as easy for them as possible. So. And that's where we start to use a lot of translation tools. So things like FME in the background. So it might not necessarily even be a change in process for that part of the business, but in the background, we're going ahead and grabbing that data they're, they're working on and we're syncing that across to our master database um, all the while, while they're just busy working away business as usual for them. So yeah, making it as seamless as possible for the, for the end user is certainly gonna make life a lot easier to get them to, to buy in as well. How about you, Nick, in terms of, um you know, seeing and you know departments that may not want to share um, information. Uh, yeah, so usually that is just down to maybe the so they might get some backlash uh, about the data or its sensitive data uh, if it's exposed to uh, the wrong audience. So there's heaps of ways that you can restrict data down as well to just allow access for a certain group of people or require a login to be able to see it. So that's probably how I'd get around that issue. But yeah, that's pretty common to have a bit of sensitive data, especially say in the heritage space, you don't really want to show everyone where all the heritage areas are for a particular location. Otherwise somebody will just, if they, if it's public, you know, people will just go there and go have a look at it. <laughs> it's not necessarily what you always want. So maybe if you could just elaborate for some of our listeners that don't understand what you mean by heritage. Um, uh, so like a sensitive, say, an archaeological site of, um, you know, whatever cultural significance. Yeah. If you have them listed out company-wide, um, I mean, yeah, it's valuable to tell people that that exists and there's a buffer around it. But, yeah, but not be so detailed about where can, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Don't be too detailed about it because I, I remember when, because I used to be an enviro in a mine site. And one of the things was we didn't want to show everyone where all of the uh, sensitive areas were because then people would go there and go and see if they can have a look at it, you know. <laughs> so it could be Maybe something. Maybe time off or something yeah. like that. So we just, yeah, just restrict it. It could be something like, you know, a rock art painting, for instance. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, yeah. yeah, great. So I wonder, you were talking earlier before as well, Nick, about like, having a bit of a BA process in the beginning of a project like this. And now we're talking about adoption. I'm just wondering from your point of view, how important the user requirements gathering part is before you embark on a project like this? And like, how important would you say it is to get that feedback on how they would like to use the platform or the interface that you build? Uh, yeah, so that is really important to start with because you, you want to know what data is going to be valuable for them to make their decisions on. Um, we said earlier that you, 
they do need to be able to see each other's data, but you don't really know uh, what parts of each other's department's data is important in whatever decision-making process. But, you, you know, you can start wherever you want to start, but the system's always going to be have to evolve uh, as the business changes as well. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's important to get, gather that, but it's also be, uh, be willing to be a bit flexible um, as you see the business start using your platform. You need to be able to uh, evolve with the business uh, to keep it all relevant. Yeah, Jack, how, how regular do you, if you say you've been through a process of building something like this before, how often would you expect to then receive feedback from the business once something like this is launched to say, yeah, this is going great, we're loving this, this kind of needs to change? Like how, how often would you really hear back on that sort of thing? Yeah, certainly initially when you, when you do build a, a centralised platform like this, it, it's a very intensive process and there'll be a lot of, of feedback initially from, from business in terms of how it's being used. Um, one of the actual other things which is really great with a lot of these systems now is the, is the ability to actually track them with analytics and, and things like that as well. So you can get a, a really good understanding of, of how the systems are actually being used. So um, we make a lot of bespoke, you know, centralised platforms. So you get an understanding of which ones the users are actually hitting the most. Um, so you have an understanding of which, which data sets are probably the most important then as well. So it's not just a case of, you know, talking to the business and, and finding out which data sets they're using, you can actually see it for yourself in real time once you start to build all of these applications. That then really helps you drive those decisions about, all right, well, which, which data sets are, are the most valuable to the business, which data sets aren't actually being used, um, can we archive some of this information off, does it really actually need to be in our fully integrated system? Um, you know, and then you get things like, you know, the cadence of the data sets, so how regularly they need to be updated. Um, you know, it gives you a really good understanding of, of how that whole system is actually working. And that's, that's some, some of the great benefits of, I guess, the modern technology now of being able to track a lot of that. Um, a lot of old desktop solutions, you're very much just a desktop environment. So you're, you're heavily reliant then on that direct feedback. So you've got to question, question the business, find out how they're using it. And you might not necessarily get a, a truthful answer. People often say things that may be more beneficial to them than are actually in real life. So when you can track things in real time, actual usage of data, um, you get a much better picture of, of how you need to con construct your, your platform that you're working with. Yeah, cool. And you guys are going to get a bonus question here from me that wasn't planned. Um, but I am wondering what role you both think, or maybe we'll go with Nick first, um, modern day cloud technology regardless of the provider, what what role cloud technology plays in building up a tool like this? In sense of like the ability to scale, um, store data, query data, um, if need be, like how important do you think it is compared to how things used to be to be able to work from the cloud? Uh, I think it's, so if your company is global um, and you want to have your single point of truth be accessible from everywhere and have some decent performance out of it. The cloud makes a lot of sense. Um, but if you're kind of, this is my views, okay? <laughs> I don't like a hybrid solution where you've got people, say, with their viewing system, say, Arc, say they're working with an Arc map and then having your data in the cloud, it doesn't really work very well, especially with GIS data. So I think cloud's good if you have your single point of truth data source in the cloud, and then you guys are also working in the cloud. That works really well. Or if you want to take advantage of your data source and 
whatever content delivery network, say like, you know, Amazon, Google or whatever, they've got their, you have it in one place and it sort of like replicates around the world. So you can use your data sources from anywhere in the world and get pretty good performance out of that. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's great to have that sort of service, especially if you have maybe your uh, imagery services in the cloud, like an ArcGIS sort of image server, and then your users are consuming that through WMS, WMTS. Um, but a lot of the time we find you will eventually need to replicate it downstream sometimes as well, just for performance benefits and also if you needed to use it for offline capability. So it's quite a few things to consider. I, I wouldn't always say cloud is the best solution for things, despite what others might say. You really need to think about your situation. I think Jack's probably got something to say about this as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd probably take more the the, the data angle um, when you sort of discuss these sorts of things. Um, we've got a lot more data being captured probably than ever before. Um, particularly um, with a lot of asset management type systems as well. So we've got a lot of uh, sensors attached to assets, which can be capturing things like location, but also, you know, um, condition of equipment, um, current readings. So there's lots and lots of data being recorded all the time. Um, and that, that kind of scalability, I guess, of the cloud solution, in a lot of situations, those things are running off just, you know, SIM cards that are sitting as, as attached to that device. So it's much easier for that just to ping straight into a cloud rather than trying to go back via you know, some sort of um, convoluted VPN structure that might be required on internal systems as well. Um, and then that can then be fed down, you know, from the cloud directly into your platform as well. So it, it may actually end up being a bit of a, a hybrid as Nick kind of maybe went against a little bit there, but in some situations you may have a lot of your main data localized or, you know, in a cloud situation, but in an internal, internal network. Um, and then you may have all these opportunities to access these, you know, Internet of Things sensors and all the data that comes from those as well and, and use that cloud technology to really kind of scale that sort of data as well. It still blows my mind how much data is being collected that you just don't even think about. Like when I hear you, Jack, speak about like IoT devices and sensors picking up data, I actually, I can't remember who I was talking to. Somebody gave me this really great example. It might have been the guys from 3VG on the podcast last season. We're talking about how mining trucks have um, sensors in the wheels so that, you know, if like a wheel has, you know, deflated or popped or something on one of those huge trucks. And so people get alerted about it in an office somewhere before anyone's even had time to call anybody up. Um, and they can send out, a you know, repair people to go and fix it. It gives the coordinates of where the truck is. And I was just like, oh, my God, you, you know, I had no idea. And so when you think about the sheer scale of, of the data being collected, even when you think about that example, it must be, like, enormous if we're talking about a business that's like an enterprise level, like a big mining company. Yeah, when you talk about scale of data uh, and then, yeah, Jack mentioning scalability, that is a huge benefit of the cloud. Especially when you consider, say, something like machine positions uh, and trying to capture that and then store that in your, say, your local SQL, it's almost not really feasible. So, yeah, we, I've seen examples of something like those big data stores being used and then being able to query on those uh, super quickly to, to come up with different things. Like I've seen an example of a uh, big query being used 
to collect heaps and heaps of data of all these like over 500 machine positions and then uh, automatically generating the common routes that they're using and identifying new tracks and new roads based off of that data. So yeah, maybe I have to backpad a little bit. There are some pretty good uh, <laughs> uh, benefits there, especially also when you're talking about the, the IoT stuff. Um, and then it, it was interesting what Jack said, like say a hybrid system where you're capturing the data, putting it into the cloud, and then maybe processing it and then bringing that back down to... Um, a, so maybe not bringing all of it back down, but bringing back down the usable products um, into your local database. So you get sort of the benefits of both worlds. So that's, yeah, that's a really yeah, cool idea, Jack. Good going, Jack. <laughs> Great. Well, that's all we've got time for today, guys. Um, I really want to just thank you again for being on the podcast. I think it's really important to talk about things like this because if you're a young GIS person, you know, at some stage in your career, you're going to have to go and and be involved in a project like this and understand what it takes. Do either of you have any, you know, advice, tips, tricks, you know, recommendations that you'd give to anyone that would be embarking on a project like this? Yeah, so I actually did a podcast with Joy and staff uh, on data governance. So that's really, you know, we were talking about that BA work that you need to do up front. Uh, that will be a big part of it. So figuring out your data governance and we went through a lot of the detail on that in that previous podcast. I can't remember what number it is, but oh, I'm so sure good. Sarah I will, will link it for us. Yeah, I'll link it yeah. in the show notes. Very entertaining podcast. Um, I think, yeah, I've had Joy on the podcast before. Joy Miles is one of our NGIS colleagues. She is very passionate about good data governance in projects. So um, and staff really brought a different angle to that. You know, he's worked a lot, like Nick was saying before, in the heritage space, um, the north of WA. Um, so he has a lot of field collection experience and gave a different, like, angle to that conversation, which I thought was really interesting. So, yeah, Nick, I'll include that in the show notes. Jack, did you have any tips or recommendations? Yeah, um, I guess um, just getting a good understanding of the uh, the ETL tools that are, that are available to you for, for all of these processes. So having to get data from, you know, all sorts of different systems and formats into other formats. Um, you know, one of the, the obviously the, the leader in that space is, is FME. Um, and that's probably the spatial solution that we use in most situations for a lot of this work. Um, not to say there aren't other ETL tools out there, but um, that's, that's certainly one that I'd, I'd be researching and, and having a good look at. Yeah, cool. Well, I believe FME does have a free trial option um, for anyone that might be wanting to just have a play around with it and, you know, get their hands on the tools and see what's under the hood there. So I'll include that in the show notes as well. Uh, but guys, thank you um, once again for being here today. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me along. It's been good fun. Great. Well, if you enjoy what you're listening to on Location Matters, don't forget you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Google Podcasts. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.